to the Freak Show, fellow freaks. I'm Matthew Brockmeyer. I'm Krista Carmen. And this is... Murder Coaster. The Black Dahlia. Just the name itself evokes mystery and intrigue, conjuring images of a raven-haired and gothic beauty, tragically slain at the zenith of her youth, of a gritty 1940s Los Angeles, straight from a hard-boiled true detective magazine, revealing the dark underbelly of old-school Hollywood. Indeed, the Black Dahlia murder is one of the most enduring murder mysteries in the history of true crime, and one of the most gruesome as well. The savage killing of beautiful and enigmatic Elizabeth Short in 1947 sent shockwaves through Los Angeles and beyond, leaving a trail of unanswered questions and unsettling theories in its wake. Today, we take a deep dive into this infamous case of murder. And in the end, we ask, could the death of this beautiful girl be more than an act of brutal homicide, but an attempt at surrealistic art. Ladies and gentlemen, we present to you The Black Dahlia Murder, a mystery presented in four acts. Let's begin. Act one, a little girl lost and her struggle to breathe. Elizabeth Short, known to her friends and family as Betty, was born July 29, 1924, in Boston, the third of five daughters to Cleo and Phoebe Short. In 1927, the family briefly moved to Portland, Maine, but ended up in Medford, Massachusetts. Cleo made a living designing and constructing miniature golf courses. What a cool job. That'd be fun, yeah. huh? For sure. I didn't even ever think of that as being a job. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, They say Betty was a happy and cherubic child, always grinning with a big bob of jet black hair, a loving child who always had a kind word for everyone. And, you know, I can just see her in this mini golf fantasy land of castles and windmills. But in 1929, when Betty was just five years old, the stock market crashed, and the family lost everything. As the Great Depression began to take its toll, Betty's father, Cleo's car, was found abandoned alongside the Charles Bridge. Although his body wasn't recovered, it was assumed he'd leapt off the bridge in a state of despair and committed suicide, like many others had after losing everything in the historic stock market crash. And now... Phoebe was a widow and forced to raise and support five children as a single parent. But she was stoic. She became a bookkeeper and just made it work. Cherubic Betty had blossomed into a stunning beauty. But there was something more than just her physical good looks. There was a grace and elegance to her. She glided when she walked. Her head held so evenly it was said you could balance a glass of water on it. 
She was like a movie star, and Betty and her friends loved the movies. Betty would spend hours and hours at the movie theater, watching the films over and over again, only to go home and act them out on her front porch. But Betty struggled to breathe, literally. She had a severe case of asthma, and after a bout of bronchitis, had to undergo lung surgery. Doctors suggested she avoid the harsh winters of Massachusetts and instead spend winters in Florida. So at 16, Betty started traveling to Florida in the winter months and staying with friends and family. This would be the start of a life constantly on the move and shuffling place to place that she would live until the day she tragically died. Then something utterly crazy happens. And this is just the first insane thing that occurred in this case. And it has so many crazy twists and turns and surprises. I mean, this story, it's going to make your head spin in the end. So Betty's mom, Phoebe, receives a letter in the mail from none other than Cleo. He was alive and well and living in California. He'd faked his own death in order to abandon his family and escape his financial ruin. And now, after 12 long years, he wanted to reconnect with his wife and five daughters. What a piece of shit. (laughs) Phoebe was obviously glowering, irate, and humiliated. She wanted nothing to do with him. But Betty, who was now 18, was eager to make amends and have her father back in her life. And in 1943, moved to sunny Southern California to be with him. She hadn't seen him since she was six years old. Man. But the father-daughter reunion was sadly not destined to be rainbows and sunshine. It appears Cleo was looking for a maid and surrogate housewife, someone to cook and clean and cater to his needs. And Betty, well, she was 18 and in California the land of movie stars. She wanted to go out and have some fun, which Cleo saw as being lazy and promiscuous. They began to argue, and it only took a few months before Betty moved out. Cleo gave her a hundred bucks to get a bus back east, but Betty, Betty had other ideas. Betty got a job as a cashier at Camp Cook, known today as Vandenberg Air Force Base. There, she won the title of Camp Cutie. Though Betty was a bit of a party girl and loved a good time, she was also known as being very chaste. She was a good girl. She wasn't easy and didn't sleep around, which earned her a bit of a reputation for being a tease. But Betty did like the party. And one night at a restaurant in Santa Barbara, she and her friends got a little wild and boisterous. And the rowdy crew, they got the cops called on them. As Betty was only 18, she was arrested for underage drinking. Her mugshot is online. We'll, we'll post a pic on Instagram. It's, uh, it's, it's sad, but you can just see how sweet she was. This lost little girl looked to her, but kind of stubbornly defiant at the same time. And you can also just tell from this picture that, well, she must have been fun as hell to hang out with. <laughs> So the cops put Elizabeth on a bus and ship her back to old Medford, Massachusetts. From there, she was back to Florida, locating in Miami, 
where she met and fell deeply in love with an Air Force pilot on leave named Major Matt Gordon of the Flying Tigers. Matt was soon off to the war again, but the two wrote constantly, deep and heartfelt letters. And in one, he said that when he returned stateside, he was going to make her his bride. Betty was ecstatic and wrote to her mother about the engagement. When visiting family, she'd proudly wear the wings that Matt had sent her. But tragically, Major Matt Gordon would die in a plane crash on August 10th, 1945, just four days before the end of the war, and just one day before he was to be discharged from the Air Force. Man, that's so tough. Matt's death sent Betty into a deep depression. Weeping, she would read and reread his many letters over and over again, telling everyone her true love and fiancé was dead. But here, we can maybe see some minor character flaws in Sweet Betty. She was a troubled soul. I mean, who wouldn't be after all her short life had put her through? And Betty had learned to lie to gain attention and sympathy. It's said that when Matt's mother heard about this supposed engagement, she said none of it was true, that he'd never even mentioned Betty to her once. And Betty would later tell people, that she was a war widow, that her husband died in a plane crash, and that she'd lost her baby in childbirth. But her autopsy would later show she had never been pregnant. And there's really nothing to prove she was married or even really engaged. But life went on. She found work as a waitress and cashier, and friends say that any money she earned went to buy clothes that Betty would rather do without eating to spend money on the latest style of clothing. She had a penchant for wearing dark, fitted suits, white ruffled blouses, high heels, and long gloves. Elizabeth knew how to play up her looks. She would use henna to darken her hair. She wore bright red lipstick and makeup that accentuated her beauty. And there was always that call of California echoing in her ears, the dream of Hollywood. Betty started contacting friends back in California, one of which was Lieutenant Gordon Fickling. She had once briefly dated. Gordon was going to be on leave in Chicago, and Betty traveled there to meet him, and they spent a few days together. And soon, she was in love with him again. She agreed to move to Long Beach, California, to be with him. And it was at a Long Beach drugstore Betty used to frequent that she would receive the name the Black Dahlia. There was a noir film out at the time called The Blue Dahlia. And because of Betty's jet black hair and fine fashion sense of wearing black, she was coined the Black Dahlia. You gotta love it. People who wear all black are the best people. Uh, at some point, she even gets a flower tattooed on her thigh, which is really wild for back then. Today, she would have been an awesome goth girl maybe even a friend of mine. Well, folks began calling this raven-haired young beauty the Black Dahlia. Later, it would be reported that newspapers gave her this name after her death. But that's untrue, as is much of the information you'll find on this case. Betty loved to go to Hollywood to dance and drink. She'd tell people she had moved there to become a movie star, but she never pursued that little girl dream with any seriousness, never tried out for roles or got headshots taken. 
Perhaps she was just waiting to be discovered one day. Perhaps she didn't have time or means, the connections, to even make a start. There was also an actor's strike going on at the time, which would have made auditions difficult. But Gordon grew jealous of all the attention beautiful Betty was getting, and the two began to argue. He eventually left California and moved to North Carolina, where he became an airline pilot and had a family. Occasionally, he'd write Betty, sometimes sending her money. Betty shuffled about Hollywood, sometimes renting a room for a month and skipping out before the rent was due, struggling to survive. There was a housing crisis in Los Angeles at the time, too many people and not enough places to live. So it was common for people to stay with each other for periods of time. Betty stayed for a while in an apartment on 6024 Carlos Avenue, rented by Mark Hansen, to his girlfriend, Ann Toth, an actress. She also stayed at another friend's house at the Chancellor Apartments and often stayed in the Hawthorne Hotel when she just wanted some time alone. In early December of 1946, Betty decided to stay with family friends in San Diego and hopped a bus going south. There, she met a guy named Robert Manley, who went by Red. Red was married, his wife pregnant, and swears that they were just close friends who had a special connection, saying she had a boyfriend at the time as well. But one day, Betty called him, upset after apparently fighting with her boyfriend. He'd later say she had scratches on her arms, so he agreed to give his good friend Betty a ride back to Hollywood. Yeah, I mean, you gotta help your friend out. Though I do wonder what his wife thought of that. (laughs) Red says Betty told him she was tired of California and was going to head back to Massachusetts to be with her mother and her sisters. The two shared a hotel room along the way, Red swearing she slept on the sofa and he on the bed. And he dropped her off at the Biltmore Hotel in Hollywood. He watched as she went to a phone booth and then hurried off as he had a sales appointment for work. That was January 9th, 1947, at 6.30 p.m., and she was never seen alive again. Ladies and gentlemen, Act Two, The Murder, A Savage Grin and an Absence of Blood. On the morning of January 15th, 1947, a woman named Elizabeth Bersinger and her daughter, were walking down South Norton Avenue in Los Angeles. To the north, the famous Hollywood sign could be seen in the hills. As the mother and daughter strolled down the lane, Elizabeth noticed a mannequin someone had tossed beside the sidewalk, lying there in two parts. But as she grew closer, she noticed the mannequin, though white as chalk, was incredibly lifelike. And to her horror, she saw it was indeed a naked woman who had been chopped in half. Screaming hysterically, Elizabeth grabbed her daughter and ran to a neighboring house, and the police were called. Two uniformed officers arrived and immediately called for backup, shocked to their cores at the horror of what lay before them. The woman was white as snow. She'd been drained of all blood. There wasn't a drop of blood about her. She'd been posed 
arms out at 45 degree angles with her hands raised up as if in surrender. And her face, man, her face had been savagely mutilated. She appeared to be a very beautiful woman, but someone had sliced her mouth from ear to ear, creating a horrible clown grin, something called a Glasgow smile. Now, there's photographs of her face online, but I warn you, they are ghastly to look at. Her body had been neatly severed at the waist, the lower 12 inches below her upper half and slightly off center. Her legs were luridly spread wide, her intestines in a pile beneath her. Her right breast had been completely removed, her left breast slashed below the nipple. There were deep scratches on her thigh in a crosshatch pattern, like a tic-tac-toe board. There was a deep four-inch incision above her pubic area, the kind of cut you'd see a surgeon perform for a hysterectomy. There were eight cigarette burns to her back and ligature marks on her feet, hands, and neck from where she'd been bound. Near the body were several empty concrete bags with watery blood on them. These concrete bags would be determined to have been used to haul the body. The body laid over them, not in them. Because of the absence of blood, LAPD knew she had been murdered and mutilated in a separate location and brought there. And because of the deepness of the ligature marks, they knew she'd most likely been held captive for a long time, perhaps even days. Autopsy results would reveal even more horror. The coroner reported the female body was five foot five inches, 115 pounds, with blue eyes, and rotted teeth with candle wax used as fillings. Much has been speculated over the fact that she had rotten teeth. It's said she was probably into meth. She could have been a speed freak. Methamphetamine is known to rot the teeth. But I don't see that at all. This is a woman who survived the Great Depression as a child. She had surely suffered malnutrition at some point. And the medication given to her for her asthma and bronchitis had surely helped the rot as well. Plus, it was just a different era with different oral health regimes. The coroner also found the body had been completely exsanguinated. There was not a drop of blood left in her. And the corpse had been meticulously bathed and scrubbed with a coconut fiber brush and the hair shampooed. There were multiple abrasions to the back of her head. She'd been sodomized with an unknown object, but there were no sperm present. The flower tattoo on her left thigh had been cut off and inserted into her vagina. Her stomach was filled with an unknown green granular material mixed with feces. It was ruled she'd been forced to eat this before her death. When she'd been cut in half, not a single organ was cut. It was done with clean surgical precision, not even a nick on her spine, in what is known as a hemicorpectomy, a method actually taught to surgeons in medical schools at the time. This method severs the two halves of the body without cutting through any bone at all. 
Instead, the spine is bisected between the second and third lumbar vertebrae with a scalpel. Because of the precision and technique, the killer was believed to have been a doctor or surgeon. The official cause of death was hemorrhage and shock due to the concussion of the brain and lacerations of the face. Her time of death was ruled to have happened sometime in the evening of January 14th to the morning of January 15th. Her killer had had her for six days. Needing to identify the body as quickly as possible, the LAPD sent her fingerprints to the FBI in Washington, D.C. But because of a huge snowstorm, it appeared the fingerprints were going to be held up for at least a week. But the police end up getting the prints right to the FBI by borrowing new technology from the newspaper The Herald Express. This new technology was a sound photo, some kind of old-school fax machine. The newspaper even helped by converting the prints to 8x10 negative images, and the FBI quickly linked the prints to Betty's Santa Barbara arrest for underage drinking. It's, this is, it's actually like, you know, it's amazing how they were able to do all that, like, way back then. Like, go through a database of fingerprints without a computer? Yeah, it's, it's kind of unbelievable. It's crazy. But when the FBI reported back, the newspaper received the name as well. A reporter named Wayne Sutton now had the name, Elizabeth Short, and her arrest file from Santa Barbara, but he didn't know anything about her. He was able to track down Elizabeth's mother, Phoebe, and called her on the phone, making contact before the police did. He called pretending that Elizabeth had won a beauty pageant and he needed details for an article on her. Phoebe happily provided him with stories about Elizabeth. When Sutton had plied Betty's mother for all the information he could, he then bluntly informed her that Elizabeth had been brutally murdered. Phoebe didn't believe him and hung up the phone. She would, however, realize it wasn't some sick joke when police arrived at her door to tell her in person that her daughter, at only 22 years old, was dead. That shit is so fucked up and disturbing, man. I I don't like what in the actual like why do that I mean I get you want the information but like what the hell so cruel man so cruel and thoughtless well the the first headlines on this were werewolf murder so we're still keeping the werewolf theme alive here a little bit but of course once the press learned of her nickname it was all over she was now the Black Dahlia, a name which captured the public's fascination then and still does to this very day. The story ran coast to coast and was on the front page of the LA Times for 31 days straight. The fascination with the Black Dahlia had begun, but things would only get crazier. On January 22nd, exactly one week later, a man called the editor of The Examiner, James Richardson, claiming to be the Black Dahlia killer. The mysterious man says he's going to turn himself in, but not until the police pursue him further. He then says, I will send you some of the things she had with her when she, shall we say, disappeared. Expect some souvenirs of Beth Short in the mail. 
The name Beth flummoxed investigators and reporters. Why Beth? Did he missay her name, or does he know her better than they do at this point? Three days later, a manila envelope is discovered, on which it is written with individual letters cut out of magazines. To the Los Angeles Examiner and other reporters, here's the Dahlia's belongings. Letter to follow. And this is like the stereotypical ransom note, you know, like each letter individually cut out, like the Sex Pistols album. Yeah, yeah. And in the envelope were Betty's birth certificate, business cards, photographs, names written on pieces of paper, an address book with the name Mark Hansen embossed on the cover. Everything had been carefully cleaned with gasoline, similarly to how Betty's body had been scrubbed, which led police to suspect the packet had, in fact, been sent directly by her killer. And on January 26, the examiner receives another letter, this one handwritten saying, here it is, turning in Wednesday, January 29th, 10 a.m. Had my fun at police, Black Dahlia Avenger, with an address stating where the killer would turn himself in. Police wait at the designated spot, but the killer never shows up. The same day, another letter arrives, again with cut and pasted letters, that reads, Have changed my mind. You would not give me a square deal. Dahlia killing was justified. Hey, horror movie lovers. We want to let you know about an upcoming film called I'll Be Glad When You're Dead. An homage to 80 slashers movies. They got an Indiegogo campaign giving away all kinds of fun swag. So give them some support and love. There's a link in the show notes. That's I'll Be Glad When You're Dead, the Indiegogo campaign. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Act 3, The Suspects. Gangsters, folk singers, Hollywood tycoons, and time travel. There were over 150 suspects. And over 500 false confessions. Just crazy. 500 people falsely confessed to this. And those suspected included, somehow, strangely enough, folk singer Woody Guthrie, (laughs) as well as iconic filmmaker Orson Welles, and gangster Bugsy Siegel. Though all of these accusations proved ridiculous. Well, we obviously can't cover all the suspects, but... Let's talk about some of them. Obviously, there was Robert Manley, or Red, the last person to see Betty alive. Red had been in the military and was discharged for mental illness, which definitely raised suspicions. The police brought him in for questioning and even ran a polygraph on him, but he passed. Not that that means much, especially as polygraphs were so primitive at the time. Yeah, Pee Wee Gaskins, he could pass a lie detector any time. And he said he did it by concentrating on wiggling his little toe. (laughs) Crazy. But the accusations took a toll on Red, especially when his son went and told the press that he believed he had done it. And old Red ended up in a mental institution in the 50s, where he was again interrogated and given a polygraph, again passing. 
But, you know, this guy, he had no medical training that would give him the skill to bisect a body like that. Though he remained of interest, he really wasn't a serious suspect. The next suspect was Mark Hansen, the owner of the address book Betty had used. Danish-born, he was the business manager of the Florentine Nightclub and also ran a number of movie theaters. There's a rumor that he was affiliated with organized crime, but this has been proven untrue, and he has no criminal record whatsoever. Betty had needed an address book, and he gave her one of his that he hadn't used, but was inscribed with his name. Then there was Leslie Dillon, who actually contacted the LAPD himself. He began writing to Los Angeles Police Department psychiatrist Dr. J. Paul de Riva in October 1948. So Leslie was an aspiring writer and fascinated with this case. Can you imagine a writer fascinated with true crime? Crazy. (laughs) He had been a mortician's assistant which aroused suspicion, and it's still mentioned to this day. But actually, he just drove the ambulance, and he only did this for three weeks. But Dylan would tell the psychiatrist, Paul de River, that he believed his friend, Jeff Connors, committed the crime. And de River came to believe that this Connors didn't really exist and was an alter ego of Dylan, a personality he blamed for the murder. And De River tricked him into this strange, almost confession where he was actually arrested. Newspapers had a field day with this. I mean, it is great copy, but further investigation proved Dylan was in San Francisco on the day of the murder. He couldn't have possibly been the culprit. And it also ended up his friend did indeed exist and wasn't just a figment of his imagination. Leslie ended up suing the city of Los Angeles for slander. Just a bizarre, bizarre story, as is everything with this case. An early suspect who the newspapers jumped on was Corporal Joseph Dummy. This guy claimed he had dated Betty and was blacked out drunk for days during her murder. But just a bit of investigating showed he was actually stationed in New Jersey during the murder. People like to claim everybody from the lipstick killer in Chicago, who was actually in prison during the time of the murder, though people believe they arrested the wrong guy and the real lipstick killer somehow escaped to Hollywood to commit the Black Dahlia murder. Seems far-fetched at best to me, as well as saying the Cleveland Torso killer could have done it, but while the Cleveland Torso murders are technically unsolved, most agree that Dr. Francis E. Sweeney was most likely the culprit. He was placed in a mental asylum in 1938, at which point the killings immediately stopped. But it just gets crazier. Sensational papers came to believe there was a woman with Betty, and somehow this woman came to be seen as a lesbian doctor who murdered her. She was even listed in the district attorney files as, quote, queer woman surgeon, end quote. And there is absolutely no proof or even a bit of possibility to this crazy theory, obviously thought up to sell newspapers, just total tabloid insanity. Betty was absolutely not gay and had been traveling with Red Robert Malloy. Nonetheless, this theory stuck and you still hear it. James Elroy actually mentions this in his novel, and it's in the Brian De Palma movie with Scarlett Johansson. 
not only is it nonsense, this is actually homophobic propaganda. As there was this image being pushed in the late 40s and early 50s of lesbians being murderous, psychotic monsters. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, good grief. Uh, then there's Jacob Edward Fisk. This person, though they had their own Wikipedia page for a hot minute, doesn't even exist. It was a prank. And the Wikipedia page stated he had traveled through time to commit the murder. But it just goes to show how bizarre and far-fetched many of the suspects are. Oddly enough, many people accuse their own fathers of this murder. Famously, there was Janice Knowlton, who wrote a book in 1998 accusing her father, George Knowlton, of committing the crime. She says she was able to recover suppressed memories of him committing the murder with a hammer. There's no proof whatsoever of this. And Janice was a deeply troubled soul who eventually, sadly, took her own life. But one of those accusing their own father, a man named Steve Hodell, had actually been a Los Angeles homicide detective for years. And his evidence is quite, quite compelling. In fact, many now consider the murder solved and that Steve Hodell's father, George Hodell, was the actual killer. Beyond the Shadows podcast. In the darkest corners of our universe lie spaces where even the light won't go. Places where terror and the unknown lurk, always waiting. Join Ryan and Scott on the Beyond the Shadows podcast as we pull back the curtain and peer into the darkness. We'll examine hauntings, true crimes, mysteries, UFOs, exorcisms, reincarnations, mysteries, and all things dark. Join us as we go Beyond the Shadows. Ladies and gentlemen, Act 4, Surrealism and Hell, the life of George Hill Hodel, Jr. George Hill Hodel, Jr. was born in 1907 in downtown Los Angeles. He was an only child, a musical protege, who played piano concerts at the Shrine Auditorium at nine years old. Though his mother doted over him, it's said he hated her because of it. She wouldn't let him play baseball with the other boys, saying he'd hurt his hands. His real passion was always art, but his mother forced him into music. Well, some chicken coop murder vibes there, right? Yeah, for sure. But when George's mother died, he immediately quit playing piano and had nothing to do with it again. In high school... He achieved some of the highest academic scores in California history. And an IQ test found him to have an IQ of 186, far, far beyond genius level. At 15 years old, George graduated high school and began to attend college at Caltech. And this little rascal, well, he gets in an affair with a professor's wife. She gets pregnant, the marriage is destroyed, it's a huge scandal. She goes back to Massachusetts, where she has the child, and names it Folly, because the affair had been a folly. Just what the fuck? <laughs> Can you imagine being named Folly? Asking, Mommy, why is my name Folly? Well, son, you were just something that happened on a whim one day. 
Jesus, that's just the most nutty thing I've ever heard of as a the genesis of someone's name. Uh, but little George, only 15, he follows her back to Massachusetts, where he declares his love for her, says he wants to raise the child with her and marry her. She laughs in his face, tells him he's a child, and says she never wants to see him again. Devastated, George goes back to L.A. He'd been expelled from Caltech for the scandal. So, inspired by his love of art, he starts a magazine about surrealism called Fantasia. Here's an excerpt from a book review he wrote for the first issue. Recurring a persistent refrain throughout is seeing phallic symbolism, sometimes exhausting the sexual vocabulary in lecherous blatancy, sometimes shrouded in veils of yonic characterization. The black and white illustrations which accompany the text are massively and gauntly superb, though they are obviously forced to harmonize with the grotesque theme of the fantasy. With almost adamant pigments as the author painted this monstrous dream, and with delicate and meticulous craftsmanship as he fashioned this cadaverous and perverse beauty. He was only 17 when he wrote this review. Now, I've always loved surrealism. It explores the subconscious mind, invoking a dream state where things have double meaning, nothing's as it seems. It's bizarre and weird and meant to express the workings of the inner mind. I've even gone to the museum Salvador Dali built in Spain. It, it's an amazing place. I highly recommend visiting it if you could ever get a chance. But there are dark elements to surrealism. One of those is a deep misogyny. Perhaps it was just the culture of the times. Perhaps a lot of surrealistic artists were just assholes. It always sucks when you find out your heroes are assholes. But Women were seen as nothing more than objects to the surrealists. They existed only as a symbolic manifestation. Their purpose was to serve both the art and the artists. While surrealism owed heavily to the theories of Sigmund Freud and his book, The Interpretation of Dreams, it also drew a lot of inspiration from French writer, the Marquis de Sade, whose tales of sexual torture and degradation became so famous that the words sadistic and sadism were derived from his name. And we're going to get into all of this a little deeper later, but I just want to point out that 17-year-old George clung to this perception of women as inferior, as objects to be used, in particularly sexually. Perhaps it stems from his hatred of his mother, perhaps the rejection by the mother of his child. Perhaps George was simply an asshole. Maybe all three. George gets into photography, like his hero, Dada and surrealist Man Ray, and even had a one-man show at a gallery in Pasadena. But he never became recognized or accepted as an artist, though he surrounded himself with artists and members of the Los Angeles avant-garde. George then enrolled in UC Berkeley, and started working on a pre-med degree. In 1928, he begins living with a woman called Amelia, 
and they have a son together. He graduates from Berkeley and in 1932 enrolls in medical school at the University of California, San Francisco, where he studies surgery, completing over 750 hours of surgery. He marries a fashion model there named Dorothy Anthony, and they have a daughter together named Tamar. In June of 1936, George graduates and receives his MD. He's now a doctor. And for a while, he becomes the sole surgeon at a logging camp in Arizona. But he was soon back in his hometown of Los Angeles, where he joined the L.A. Health Department. There, he specialized in sexually transmitted diseases and their control. He quickly rises to the top, becoming the head venereal disease control officer for all of Los Angeles County. Yeah, I bet there's a lot of VD in Los Angeles. <laughs> oh, gosh, that's quite the job title. Uh, right. <laughs> uh. At the time, it was a huge stigma, as contracting a venereal disease meant you'd been unfaithful to your spouse. So if you were a politician or a person in power, you'd want this information highly guarded. He was able to take advantage of this knowledge, using it to secure favors and build power. And he'd also begun misdiagnosing individuals, telling them they had things like gonorrhea when they didn't, and then charging them exorbitant rates, both for the cure and in order for George to keep their little secret. But one patient caught on to him going to a different doctor and confirming that she didn't have a venereal disease, then writing a scathing letter to George demanding her money back. The letter would be received by George's secretary, Ruth Spaulding. Ruth and George had a long history. She'd worked for him for years, and they had been lovers for a bit. But George had called it off, which greatly hurt Ruth. When Ruth received this letter, and also having proof of other phony diagnoses, she threatened to go to the police. She also knew that he was performing illegal abortions. But George tells her he wants to talk it over, and maybe they could rekindle their romance, and drives to her apartment. He visits her there to find her unconscious from having overdosed on pills in a suicide attempt. Or so he says. He loads her into a cab. She's driven to the hospital and dies 20 minutes later. Seems very convenient, doesn't it? And a wee tad suspicious, him being a doctor and all. The cops thought so, at least. And George found himself under suspicion of murder. It would not be the last time. George was good friends with legendary actor, producer, and screenwriter John Huston and ends up marrying Houston's ex-wife, Dorothy Harvey, in 1940. To avoid confusion with his first wife, also named Dorothy, he calls his new wife Dorio, a combination of the Greek word Doro, meaning gift, and Eros, the god of erotic love. She was literally seen as a gift of sex to him. To George, sex ruled everything. It was the power behind all things, like a gravitational force that motivated the universe. Desire and sex all wrapped up in the mind, just as he saw surrealism, his true passion in life. Dorio and George have a son named Stephen and eventually go on to have two more children. 
1945, George buys the historic Soudan House on 5121 Franklin Avenue, which had been built in 1926 by Lloyd Wright. It's a bizarre and famous mansion, a big concrete edifice often compared to a Mayan temple or the jaws of a great white shark. You know, it kind of looks like the temple at the end of Ghostbusters. It's a weird, spooky place. We'll post a pic on Instagram. And despite its location in downtown Los Angeles, there's this element of isolation to it. It's extremely closed off with a cave-like entrance. During this time, George Hodel takes his beliefs of sexuality and the role of women as sexual objects to new heights. He moves all his various wives and their children in and was effectively a polygamist, keeping basically a harem. He divorces Dorio in 1946, but she continues to live there with their three children. Also living in the mansion is his first wife, Dorothy Anthony, and their daughter, Tamar, as well as Amelia, whom he lived with in San Francisco and was the mother of his first child, who by this time was an adult and out on his own. George kept them all as a concubine and also had upwards of 19 other lovers he would keep at the mansion as well. While George thought sex ruled the universe, fear was also a deep element. He would talk to his children through the mansion's intercom system, saying he was God and would strike them down if they didn't follow his commands. Violence was also another tactic of his strict discipline. The dark and foreboding mansion became a place of wild festivities for Los Angeles's avant-garde, especially the Surrealists, who notoriously loved to party. All kinds of famous folks hung out there. Of course, there was John Houston, who had once been married to Dorio. The Surrealist painter and, and photographer Man Ray became close friends with the family and even took their family portraits. Can you imagine Man Ray doing your family portraits? I mean, how cool. <laughs> kind of. He was also taking nude photographs of Tamar when she was only 12. Ostensibly art, but very creepy. Yeah. Yeah, not, not cool. <laughs> I wouldn't be down with it, personally. But um, Henry Miller hung out there. And, you know, I was really into Henry Miller when I was in my wild bohemian days. But, you know, uh, your heroes, he said some crazy shit, which was not cool. I just hate it when you discover disturbing shit about your heroes. So in World of Sex, Henry Miller wrote, quote, if it would help men to liberate themselves, I would recommend they have intercourse with animals or in public or commit incest, for example. There is nothing wrong in itself that is evil, not even murder. It is the fear of doing wrong, the fear of committing murder, the fear of acting or expressing oneself, which is wrong. End quote. Now, you know, I'm no prude. I'm not a kink shamer either. But there is something that's wrong and evil. It's called hurting other people. Your freedom does not include infringing on the freedoms of others. You know, as long as two consensual adults are okay with something, have at it. But animals, they can't give consent. Children cannot give consent. And no one consents to being fucking murdered. 
these acts are wrong. I don't know what evil is. I really don't see evil in a spiritual way like other people do. But hurting people, murdering people would definitely fit the bill of evil for me. Here, here. I mean, jeez. <laughs> Henry so, Miller, what are you thinking? Come on, buddy. Uh, back to Dorio. Dorio was bisexual and would often go out and find girls to bring home for lavish orgies where they'd drink absinthe and practice hypnotism. And, you know, all that, that's more or less fine with me. They're adults. They're living their best lives. Absinthe, hypnotism, surrealism. Fucking cool. But sadly and disgustingly, the children began to become indoctrinated as sex objects as well. In particular... Tamar, who is only 14. Just the name Tamar is actually really disturbing. George named her after a Robinson Jeffers poem written the same year she was born about a young girl who seduces her brother and becomes pregnant by him. She eventually sets the house on fire and destroys the family. The girl and the poem are named Tamar. So Tamar, at only 14... And incidentally, everyone said she was drop-dead gorgeous, blonde with the looks of a model. People always compare her to Marilyn Monroe. Well, 14-year-old Tamar was encouraged to join these wild parties and indoctrinated into the sexual aspects. Tamar viewed George as more than a father. She saw him as a god and thought it was an honor when he taught her how to perform oral sex on him. During one very weird hypnotism party, Tamar was basically passed around as a sexual plaything. But George made sure she remained a virgin. Guests could do what they liked with her, but they could not take her virginity. He was saving that for himself. George would often tell Tamar that one day they would have actual sex, explaining that Egyptian pharaohs all had sex with their daughters. And it was a gift that afterwards... She would be a woman. But on Father's Day, when George had actual intercourse with his daughter, something changed. For one, it wasn't the beautiful and incredible experience Tamar had been led to believe it was. It was rough and awkward. It was painful and degrading. And afterwards, everything between them changed. She didn't see him as the benevolent God anymore. And he seemed angry and guilt-ridden towards her. And to make things worse, she became pregnant. She was sent to an underground abortion clinic, a place with no anesthesia and a cruel surgeon. And it was a horrifying and painful experience. George had a friend drive Tamar to the abortion and pick her up afterwards. This quote-unquote friend then took the heavily bleeding girl who was vomiting and trembling to a hotel room and raped her. When Tamar told her father what his friend had done, he was furious, not at the sexual assault, but that she'd had intercourse after surgery and could develop an infection. The venereal doctor prevailing over any fatherly concerns at all. Oh my God. Beyond, beyond, yeah. just any, beyond anything. Tamar began to feel her life was in danger. She'd heard the rumors of how George had murdered his secretary. 
She'd even heard it rumored that he was the killer of the Black Dahlia. So she ran away. She was eventually picked up by the LAPD and made a ward of the state and held in juvenile hall. Tamar told the detectives everything about the abortion and that it was her father who had gotten her pregnant. The police raided the mansion, seizing many pornographic photographs and art objects, George explaining them as his delving into the mystery of love in the universe. He explained his acts as being performed by one in a dream, but he denied having sex with his daughter. The incest trial began in late 1949 and was a huge scandal covered by all the papers. It was described as a, quote-unquote, morals trial. George hired the top defense attorney in Los Angeles, Jerry Geisler, and a whole team of ace lawyers. There was witness statements and testimony of those who had been at the bizarre hypnotism session where Tamar was passed around as a sexual plaything. But one of them, Barbara, refuted her testimony and was actually arrested for perjury. And the star witness ended up to be Dorothy, Tamar's own mother. Tamar's mother claimed her daughter was a liar and had been making accusations like this against many, many men for years, and they were all fabricated. Tamar was attacked on the stand, the defense lawyers lashing out at her, calling her a pathological liar. And this is crazy. As an example of, of how unhinged Tamar was, the defense actually used an example of her making up crazy, unbelievable lies about her father and spreading them. And that example was when Tamar had told someone, My father is the murderer of the Black Dahlia. My father is going to kill me and all the rest of this household because he has a lust for blood. He is insane. This is the defense that they use. And it worked. On Christmas Eve of 1949, George was acquitted of all charges. George actually stayed behind to shake the hands of the jurors as they left the courtroom. But by 1950, things were growing too hot for George in Los Angeles as suspicions and rumors began to swell around him and his strange mansion. And he abandoned his children and many wives and girlfriends, eventually relocating to the Philippines, where he married and started a whole new family. Fucking A. Hello, I'm Mark. I'm Gina. And together we are Men's Wellness Theater. Or at least we try. Uh, we try to survive it. <laughs> We're the hosts of The Worst, a podcast where I deep dive horrible subjects and tell the story to Gina. And I tell terrible, tasteless jokes to kind of break up the awful, soul-crushing details that you bring us. I try and you try, and that's what makes it great. Yeah, I mean, stop being upset. We are trying our best. And honestly... We're weird people. We find this makes it a little more palatable to get through the horrible details of some of the worst true crime. Yeah, because otherwise, I just want to take an ice pick to my own eardrums. I can't do it anymore. No. So if you're the type of person who finds, you know, Weekend at Bernie's the most hilarious movie ever, we might be up your alley. Give us a try. Absolutely. Just look for Mental Illness Theater on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever platform you happen to use for podcasts. And ladies and gentlemen, Act 5, A Son Seeking Answers and Justice. 
George's son, Steve Hodel, was only a child during the wild times at the Soudan house. And after being abandoned by his father, he'd had barely any contact with him at all. And unlike the rest of the Bohemian family, like his sister Tamar, who'd fallen into a life of drugs and gone on to become some kind of hippie, Steve was exceptionally straight and upstanding. He'd served in the military as a medic in the Navy and gone on to become a police officer, rising through the ranks to be a Los Angeles homicide detective. The years passed, Steve retired from the force, and then on May 17, 1999, Steve received a phone call. His father, George Hodel, had died at 91. After a host of health problems, the old man had committed suicide by overdosing on Secanol. Steve then reunites with his long-lost sister, Tamar. He'd barely spoken to her in 50 years. One of the first things Tamar tells him was that their father had been an actual suspect in the Black Dahlia murder. Steve was incredulous. He didn't believe it. He'd been an actual homicide detective in Los Angeles. That famous mansion, it had been part of his beat as a cop, and he'd never heard anything like that. Sure, he knew about the wild parties, the supposed sex orgies. He also knew that Tamara had accused their father of incest, but she'd been proven a liar in court and had gone on to become a druggie, dropped out of society. There had never been any accusations of murder. It sounded utterly ridiculous to him. Sure, they were wild, hedonist, surrealists, but murder? So he started looking into it, setting out to clear him and exonerate his father of these ridiculous accusations. But after a little digging, sure enough, he discovers his father had been a suspect, So he set out to prove he was innocent. One of the first things he did was gathered letters his father had written him over the years and sent them to a graphologist to compare the letters from the Black Dahlia murder. They appeared to be a match. Then he started studying the crime scene. Remember, this is a retired, seasoned homicide detective. He made contact with the daughter of the original homicide detective in the case, And she actually had a box of old crime scene photos. These were photos that were not released to the public. The crime scene was only six miles from the mansion. Steve studied the photos for months, trying to understand why. Why would the body be put there in the shadow of the Hollywood sign, posed like that? Steve moves back to Los Angeles from Seattle to work on the case full time. He starts really digging in, studying the lives of the artists who had partied at the family house, particularly Man Ray, who his father had always idolized. Man Ray once said that what differentiated humanity from the animal kingdom was the need and capacity to, quote, create gratuitous emblems as if we were gods, freed from the necessity of survival. End quote. One of the aspects of surrealism was to not only see a woman's body as an object solely in service of art, but also as something to mold and change, something to turn into something else. This is what Man Ray sought to do with his photography, dictating how his nude models were to pose, the positions of their body, how they were to be seen. And it was deeper than a photograph. 
It was an act of posing a woman, forcing her into positions and bending her to your will in order to create art. There was manipulation of the female form, but also manipulation of the female mind. Steve began to think back on his father's relationship with Man Ray, how his father had always longed to be seen as an artist, to be respected by the avant-garde community, but was instead seen as a doctor. He also thought of this Man Ray quote. It has always been my dream to do something that would mystify and shock the rest of the surrealists. No fun shocking or mystifying the public. How can they expect to be impressed with something they just give two seconds of attention to? Something I have given my whole lifetime to. I would like to do something that would shock and mystify the surrealists. I haven't succeeded yet, but this idea of shocking and mystifying the question of whether a man's work is sincere or not. Is he trying to fool the public? That is all nonsense. When a man does a picture or writes a poem that seems to be shocking, he does it primarily to shock himself. He has to do something to move himself, to give himself a shock, to mystify himself. Steve studied the Man Ray photograph, the Minotaur. The Minotaur was the half-man, half-bull monster that lurked in the labyrinth, being fed virgins. The Minotaur was often symbolically used by surrealists. In the photo, a woman's torso and arms are shown in stark contrast to a black background. Her arms are up, forming what appears to be bullhorns and the shadows of her breasts, ribs, and belly form a ghoulish bull's face. While it's technically an amazing photograph, it also epitomizes the surrealist desire to use the female body to create something else. Man Ray is manipulating the female form to create this monstrous creature, but the held-up arms signify more than just horns. They are also an act of surrender. Hands held up in the air, the universal symbol of capitulation and symbolically stating that one is giving up. The Black Dahlia's arms had been posed in the same exact position. And in this photograph, because the image is only the torso and arms, it appears as if the woman had been surgically bisected or chopped in half. Steve also studied Man Ray's most famous painting, Devouring Lips, a landscape eclipsed by a pair of sensual woman's lips, which represents the devouring woman. The lips are long and thin, like the Glasgow smile given to Elizabeth Short. Had George Vidal killed Elizabeth Short as an act of surrealistic art to shock and mystify his artistic friends? Man Ray, in particular, posed her there beneath the Hollywood sign, manipulated and controlled to the ultimate point. His masterpiece, a figurative and literal, exquisite corpse that would one-up all his surrealistic friends, proving that they viewed him as just a doctor. He was actually the ultimate surrealist artist. But similar handwriting and the concept of murder and the gruesome mutilation and posing of the body as surrealist art 
wasn't enough to definitively prove that George Hodel was the murderer. Much more would be needed. Then, in completely chance encounter, this is crazy, Steve meets Walter Morgan. Walter had been a DA investigator who had been a part of the arrest of Steve's father, George Hodel. And suspecting him of being involved in the Black Dahlia murder, Walter and a group of LAPD officers had gone to the mansion, broke in, and bugged it. What they heard was terrifying, the man tells Steve. Steve then goes to the LAPD, asking to see the file. But the LAPD claim there is no file like that, saying it never happened. Besides, there's no statute of limitations in a murder case, meaning this case was technically still open, so they wouldn't be able to share files with him anyway, even if it did exist. But Steve is determined. And with the aid of Walter Morgan, they search the files of the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office. And guess what they find? A big old cache of papers entitled George Hodel, Black Dahlia File. The file revealed that in 1950, Hodel was indeed a prime suspect of the Dahlia murder, and his Hollywood residence was indeed electronically bugged by an 18-man DA-slash-LAPD task force between February 15th and March 27th, 1950. And the transcripts of those tapes were all there and contained many baffling, disturbing, and bizarre things. There were sounds of a woman weeping, later of a woman screaming hysterically, the sounds of digging with murmurs of someone saying, Without a trace. Hodel is also recorded reciting body and racist limericks to his guests, such as A peculiar people, the Persians. The country produces no versions. They fuck all day, in a violent way, and at night, practice sexual perversions. Then there was a conversation with George and a German man named Baron Haringa. Baron Haringa. The name is suspicious right there. (laughs) It's a weird one. Well, in this conversation, George tells the Baron, This is the best payoff I've seen between law enforcement agencies. You don't have the right connections. I'd like a connection with the DA's office. Any imperfections can then be found made perfect. Don't ever confess. Two and two does not make four. We're just a couple of smart boys. Two men from the DA were transferred because of my trial. Supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia. They can't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead. They thought there was something fishy. Anyway, now they may have figured it out. Killed her. Maybe. Maybe I did kill my secretary. Okay, first of all, like, so sketchy. Like, this convinces me almost right off the rip. And second of all, this is like, has like, like Charles Manson elements to it of the way he speaks. It's just like that. I don't know that he's got, it's a cult. Yeah. It's like, he's got his own cult kind of. Yeah, for sure. And he's like struggling to be the leader. He wants to be the leader, but they, they don't accept him because he's not like an artist. Right, right, right. So later Hodel is heard talking on the phone where he says, you're talking on a tapped line. 
Oh, yes. It's been tapped for some time. I'll be home for the next hour. Yes, be sure to come. He was on to them. He knew everything, had connections, and just days later, he upped and fled Los Angeles, heading to Hawaii, which was then just a U.S. territory and not yet a state. He then took off to the Philippines, where he married and had another four children. Steve also discovered that back in 1950, after George fled the country, a Lieutenant Jemison had been ordered by higher-ups to close the case and to never mention it again. He was ordered to ship all files to the LAPD, where they mysteriously disappeared. Only Lieutenant Jameson had been derelict in his duty. He'd shipped all the files to LAPD as ordered, and he'd closed the case. But he'd allowed a duplicate copy of the 600 pages on George Hodel to remain in the district attorney's archives where they wouldn't be discovered for 52 years by the son of the prime suspect. This shit is fucking crazy, right? Yeah, it's truly like... You couldn't write it. And I, well, well, too, and I love, I don't love, but I just can't believe that originally he set out to be like, oh, I'm just going to prove my father innocent and then uncovers all this shit. Totally. And Uh, Steve wasn't done with the investigation of his father yet. He was deep, deep, deep now. As we mentioned, the strange mansion had been built by the son of Frank Lloyd Wright. So Steve starts researching him. Yeah, and this is some hardcore in-depth detective work here. So he finds a file on the mansion and in it, a separate file marked Hodel with receipts for work done on the Soden house in 1947. And these are the original receipts he finds, not copies. Guess what they were for? Ten bags of concrete dated January 9th, 1947. Three days before Elizabeth Short's body would be found beside empty bags of concrete that were used to transport her. And then another receipt for landscaping including manure and a fertilizer called ferrolite. Remember the unidentified green granular particles of manure found in Betty's stomach? Ferrolite is green and granular with the ligature marks on Betty that appears she was held there in that dark and ominous house for days in the basement, forced to eat fertilizer and manure in an ultimate act of degradation and power, some disgusting and bizarre surrealistic statement on where a woman belonged, a sex slave being forced to eat shit before being murdered, completely drained of blood, washed, surgically sliced in half, and carried on those cement bags to her final resting place, only six miles away, beneath the forlorn shadow of the Hollywood sign. Okay, I'm sorry, but I'm like convinced now. That's crazy. Concrete bags right before the fertilizer. The Like, come on. Oh, God. When Steve tried to present all of this evidence to the LAPD, they told him they had no time to invest in cold cases this old. 
it's the Black Dahlia. Come on, people. (laughs) They brushed him off without even looking at it, leaving the murder technically unsolved to this day. But when Steve Hodel presented the evidence to Steve Kay, the former deputy DA of Los Angeles, he said it proved the case to him. And that if he'd had the evidence when he was working for the district attorney's office, he would have taken George Hodel to trial and won. But George Hodel is dead, as are all the original surrealists, and the LAPD have no interest in reopening an investigation. Okay, I'm really glad that this Steve K person says that if he had had this evidence, like that that, that proved the case to him that like that's crazy. Um gosh, so there you have it, dear listeners and fellow freaks. The Black Dahlia murder told in five crazy acts. Yeah, it's, it's just so crazy. There really are a lot of unanswered questions still. Steve suspects his father was responsible for a number of homicides, both before and after. And you know, we're just not going to get into it. We'll be here all week. <laughs> but it, it has been discovered that George was also a prime suspect in another homicide. And evidence was revealed in 2018 linking George Hodel to the nearby June 1949 murder of Louise Springer. And that one's called the Green Twig murder. Oh, my goodness. Um, d- d- so where's Steve now? Do we know? Did we look yeah, into he's this? out there. He's still he's writing. Yeah, I wasn't even going to mention this because just it just sounds crazy. But now he's working on connections, trying to prove his father was also <laughs> I don't even want to say it, the Zodiac killer. So I don't know if he's gone this. off the deep end or like what, but I don't know. They, 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 they did both send these crazy letters to the cops. Like yeah. I don't even I don't even want to like get into this. Whole I know that's like crazy. Oh my goodness. Yeah, he's written a number of books about it, and um, you know, you there's a lot of information out there about George Hodel. Uh, Steve's book, The Black Dahlia Avenger. There's also a Hulu documentary. But if you want a firsthand look into what it was like in the Hodel family. Listen to the Root of Evil podcast. I mean, I can't recommend this podcast enough. It's it's absolutely one of the greatest podcasts ever made. And uh, David Lynch actually does the fucking theme song. So you know oh, it's crap. good. Yeah, right? And then whatever happened to Tamar? She's still around. And um, she does interviews. If you listen, this the Root of Evil podcast is pretty much all about Tamar in a way. It's about Tamar's it's crazy. Tamara got pregnant and they made her give the baby up for adoption. For some who's they? Like the I the think father and all Lord, the like everybody. See, Tamara was constantly being threatened with not receiving any inheritance. Okay. It's crazy. Just a couple months after the the incest trial, he's like writing her Christmas cards and shit. Like the family's kind of like back together. It's so fucking bizarre. And they were, yeah. and she was terrified of not receiving any inheritance because they were rich as fuck. So she would like go along with this stuff, but she got real into drugs. She like moved to Hawaii. She was like kind of like a hippie. But, and so um, when George died, did he leave in- an inheritance to his wives and children? I believe so, but I'm not a hundred percent positive. But yeah, I think so. But then he also had like all these other people, a whole other family. 
Crazy. Yeah, definitely listen to The Root of Evil if you want the inside look. It's it's fucking, it's fucked up. <laughs> I'm definitely going to have to listen to that. And I'm interested in that Hulu documentary. I somehow missed that, too. Oh, well, for now, that's going to do it. We hope you enjoyed this, and we'll see you next week for more bizarre tales of true crime. And next week, we're getting punk rock. You guys are going to love it. I can't wait. And uh, hey, we want to hear from you. You got a case you think we should cover? Did we get something wrong? You just want to say hi? Send us a line at murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. That's murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. Bye for now. <laughs>